you ever looked up some of the famous last words of famous people? Some of them are pretty interesting. I, I just like to look them up sometimes. It's, of course, with the Internet now, it makes it easy to find out just about anything. But we can look up some things like James Dean, who died in a car wreck. His last words were, that guy's got to stop. He'll see us. Maybe not. Or John Adams, John Adams, who died on the same day as Thomas Jefferson. His final words were, Thomas Jefferson still survives. That was on July 4th, and both Adams and Jefferson had said they wanted to make it at least till the anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. So Thomas Jefferson, who died the same day, his question was, this is the 4th. George Washington said, tis well. H.G. Wells said, go away, I'm all right. Babe Ruth said, I'm going over the valley. Karl Marx said, go on, get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. But of course, despite Marx's repudiation, the fact is everybody, no matter who they are, has some last words. No matter what, we're all going to say something last. And often, folks try to make those last words count. Some of the most important last words I think we can ever find are in Luke chapter 23 and verse 46. Luke chapter 23 and verse 46. And of course I realize that we're speaking somewhat accommodatively because these really aren't the last words of Jesus. He actually said a whole lot more after his resurrection. But these are the last words before his death. And in Luke chapter 23 and verse 46. Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he hadn't just thought of this on his own. He was actually quoting from Psalm 31 and verse 5, where David wrote, Into your hand I commit my spirit. I'm just amazed as Jesus is on the cross, folks are mocking him, making fun of him, he's been beaten harangued, persecuted. He's hanging on the cross, enduring grief and agony, both physically and spiritually, I believe. And he's about to die. He's about to breathe his last. And he's able to have the presence of mind to quote the psalm. And when he's quoting the psalm, he's not just, he's not just making the statement. He's saying, this psalm that I'm quoting, this is what's going on here. This is what I'm about. And he says, Father... Into your hands I commit my spirit. What amazing trust. What amazing faith that Jesus displayed. In fact, Peter comments on this in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 23. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 23, he says of Jesus, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus recognized that the folks who had him on the cross were not the judges. They were not the ones he needed to be concerned about, but the Father was. And he entrusted his spirit. No matter what was happening to him here, no matter how they beat Him and mocked Him and crucified Him, no, no matter how our sins separated Him from the Father as He bore our sorrows, 
he still entrusted the Father to do what was right, to take care of him and deliver him. And I don't think we can fully understand this statement without taking a look at the psalm from which it came. In fact, when we take a look at that psalm, I think we recognize how Jesus could have this kind of trust and this kind of faith at this point in time in his life. And that's what I'd like for us to do a little bit this morning, to understand what's going on here on the cross by taking a look at that psalm and and learn some lessons for us about how we can commit our spirit to the Father no matter what we face. Before we do that, would you bow with me, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, into your hands we commit our spirits. We recognize that on numerous occasions we've We've withdrawn that. We've taken our spirit into our own hands and we ask for your forgiveness. We ask that you would help us to overcome the snares of Satan. We ask that you would help us to turn away from his traps, from his temptations. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us to serve and glorify you. Help us in our faith to grow so that we might trust you and commit our spirit to you no matter what we face. Help us to be able to say at all times that it is, in fact, well with our soul because we trust you. Father, we love you, and we thank you so much for loving us. Through your Son's name we pray. Amen. Let's begin by reading Psalm 31. And and again, understand that when Jesus quoted this psalm, in fact, A lot of times when we see the Old Testament quoted in the New, we need to recognize that generally the person is not just quoting the statement, but referring to the context. And that's exactly what's happening here on the cross. And so I want us to read Psalm 31, but keep it in the context of Luke 23. I know that David is talking here, and I know that he even said some things that can't possibly apply to Jesus. But when you look at the general message of Psalm 31... And what David says here, think about it in the context of Luke 23. Think about it in the context of Jesus saying, this is where I am as I'm hanging on the cross, as I'm about to die. In Psalm 31 it says, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me. A strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Verse 11. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. 
But I trust in You, O Lord. I say You are my God. My times are in Your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make Your face shine on Your servant. <coughs> Excuse me. Save me in Your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon You. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is Your goodness, which You have stored up for those who fear You and work for those who take refuge in You in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of Your presence, You hide them from the plots of men. You store them in Your shelter from the strife of tongues. Verse 21. Blessed be the Lord. For He has wondrously shown His steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you His saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. This is what Jesus was feeling and saying there on the cross when He said, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. What are some things that we can learn from this statement? I think the very first thing that we need to recognize is that trouble can happen even to the faithful. David was a man after God's own heart. And yet here in Psalm 31, notice what he says about what he's facing. In Psalm 31, in verse 9, he says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. My life is spent with sorrow and my years with sight. Anybody ever felt like that? David felt like that. And he was a man after God's own heart. Just because he felt like that didn't mean he was, was a bad man or an unfaithful man. We think about David, whom God had promised the kingdom. And yet, before he got the kingdom, he had to deal with Saul, who oppressed him and even chased him out of the kingdom. And then once he received the kingdom, he had to deal with Absalom's rebellion and even the reproach of some of his subjects. Trouble comes upon even the faithful. It doesn't mean God is not there. It doesn't mean God doesn't exist. It doesn't mean God doesn't love us. It just means we're facing life. This is life. Everyone goes through trouble, even the faithful. Even Jesus. Was anybody more faithful than Jesus? Here's the Son of God come in the flesh who never sinned who had a relationship with the Father that you and I can't even fathom. And yet look at the suffering and distress and sorrow He endured. You see, the fact is, we're going to go through trouble. We will have distress. We will have sorrows. We will have signs. Our bodies will waste away at times through grief. Loved ones will die. We will lose jobs. We will have trouble in our relationships. We will be betrayed, sometimes even by friends and family. We'll go through those things. 
But it doesn't mean God is not there. It just means we're alive in this world. And that's all it means. Everyone faces distress, sorrow, and grief. Even the faithful. Even Jesus did. But He said, into your hands, I commit my spirit. One of the most important things I think we learn, though, from this psalm is that God knows our distress. Notice what he said in verse 7. In verse 7, the psalmist says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. Why? Because you have seen my affliction, you have known the distress of my soul. No matter what we're facing, God knows what we're dealing with. God knows. And I know at times we might believe that we have become cut off from His sight, that He doesn't know what's going on, that He's forgotten us, that He's ignoring us. But what David recognizes is God knows what is going on in my life. God knows and God cares. In fact, David expresses the care of God in verse 8. He says, You have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Despite all the distress, despite all the discouragement, despite all the sighing, David recognizes God's care. He says, I know that you care because you haven't taken it this far. And that makes me think for us of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. God hasn't forgotten us. But rather, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, No temptation, this is 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He'll not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God knows where we are. He knows what we can deal with. And He is protecting us from being pushed too far. For His own reasons, He allows us to face what we face. Perhaps it's for discipline, for testing, for edification, or for protection. But God knows what we're facing, and He will not allow Satan, our enemy, to so tempt us that we must be overcome. That won't happen. He has not delivered us into our enemy's hands, but rather provides the way of escape. And then I remember Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, where the Scripture says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Not only does God know what we're dealing, but God, God knows how He's going to use it for our good. We can't see the big picture. We don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. We don't know where the trouble we're facing today is going to lead. But guess who does? God does. Not only does God know who we are and what we're facing, but God knows exactly how He's going to use it for our good if we continue to love Him. He's already got that figured out. Because of that, we can trust Him. However, sometimes we get caught up in thinking that maybe He doesn't. And I guess one of the verses in this psalm that most intrigued me was there at verse 22 when he said, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. What I see in the psalm is that David is intellectually saying, I know you're there, but he's talking about his feelings here. He said, in my alarm, I said, I'm cut off from your sight. How did he feel? He felt separated. He felt like God wasn't there. 
Anybody here ever felt like that? I bet we have. I have. I said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight. Jesus felt that way. Matthew 27 and verse 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By the way, another quote from a psalm. Not just a statement, but applying that entire psalm to him. We're talking about that separation from the Father. We're not wrong for ever having felt that way. But we've got to respond to that properly. Like David did. Like Jesus did. Instead of allowing those times when we feel cut off from God to cause us to actually turn away from God, we need to allow those times to cause us to turn back to God. That's what David did. And we need to remember what the Hebrew writers points out in Hebrews 13, verse 5 and verse 6, that we ought not allow our character to be filled with the love of money, but to be satisfied with what we have, remembering that He has promised, I will never forsake you. Or as the psalmist wrote in Psalm 139, we need to remember, as he pointed out, whether I ascend into heaven or I make my bed in Sheol, where can I go from your spirit? <coughs> Have you had days where you felt like you were flying on the clouds in heaven? Have you had days where it felt like you were in Sheol? But we haven't left the Spirit of God. He's still there. He still knows. And He still cares. And we need to remember that and turn to God. Think about Jesus on the cross and He says this, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. Even as He dealt with all the mockery, the pain, and even that spiritual separation caused by our sins, he was still able to recognize that my Father knows what I'm going through and He's there and He's going to deliver me. And of course, that's perhaps the main point. That we can trust God to deliver. The entire psalm that Jesus was referring to is about deliverance. David talks about how God redeemed him. That's why he begins by saying, I take refuge in you. God is his refuge. And then in verse 3, you are my rock and my fortress. I know that you're going to deliver me. But as we understand this concept, I think perhaps the most important admission in the text is in verse 15. My times are in your hand. David was able to trust God even though things weren't happening quickly because he understood that his times were in God's hand, not his own hand. What David is pointing out is, I know I prayed about this yesterday and I'm still going through it today, but I trust you, God, to take care of this in your time. I trust you, God, to take care of this when it's best. And David was able to put that in God's hand. Instead of expecting God to act on His own timetable, he recognized that God would act when was best. My times are in your hand. And how hard that is for us. 
when we're looking for a job or our loved one lays dying or we're sick or we're having trouble with family members or church troubles. Sometimes we feel like we just can't make it another day, but hey, God brought us through today, didn't He? And He'll get us there tomorrow. And He'll get us to where He delivers us in His own time. But understand this. God will deliver His faithful. If we stay faithful. Don't allow the suffering and the sorrow and the distress to turn our backs on God. Hang on to God and draw closer and trust Him to deliver in His time when He sees fit. And as I consider this entire psalm, I can't help but recognize that Jesus quoted this at the moment just before His death. He was looking straight into death. That's where He was next going. And He said, Father, into Your hands, I commit my spirit. I'll tell you what that tells me. We've got to learn to live, excuse me, we've got to learn to die with the same faith with which we live. Jesus saw the Father as His deliverer. But interestingly, He didn't see that deliverance coming by the Father pulling Him down off the cross and healing those wounds. He didn't see the Father delivering Him by sending the angels down and striking dead all His enemies at His feet. It actually appears that He recognized the deliverance would come through death. I think perhaps this point stands out to me the most right now just because of what my family's just been through. As Marita's father died, we could go Friday night. And I think about how many times we prayed that God deliver him from his cancer. Guess what? He did. He no longer has cancer. He's been delivered. You know, interestingly, we often talk about the 11th hour deathbed conversions. People who at the last moment, because they're finally facing death, they realize how much they need God and they turn their lives over to Him. But I've also seen the opposite. I've seen 11th hour deathbed reversions. People who decided that because the 12th hour was coming a lot quicker than they expected, that God had somehow let them down. And because of that, they were going to turn their back on it. And what's most sad about that is they didn't save their lives by doing that. They died anyway. And only condemned their souls. But I take a look at a good example. Marita's dad, Steve Bonner. My dad, Toby Crozer. And others. How 
and how they didn't allow death and even the certainty of it to turn them away from God, but rather to cause them to draw closer to God. To recognize the deliverance that would come through that. Talking about last words. I'm sure I'm not going to get this exactly right, and I know Marita will correct me afterwards, but her dad's last words were something along the lines of, please just let me go home. And guess what? He's home. He's delivered. But how hard it is sometimes for us to face death with the same faith with which we faced life. Can we entrust our spirit to God's hand in that moment? Recognizing that that is deliverance. You see, for God's faithful children, death is not a defeat. It's a victory. Death is not an oppression. It's freedom. Death is not a curse. It's a blessing. Of course, I'm not saying that we all need to be going out looking for death. We've got too much work to do here while we're alive. But when it comes, we learn from Jesus that we can commit our spirit to the Father who judges justly. And trust Him. And I'll tell you what. There's not a single child of God who's ever faced death with the faith they had in life that feels cheated right now. As they rest in Abraham's bosoms, in the presence of Christ, there's not a single one that feels cheated. We need to have that faith. God knows. God cares. And God will deliver. And if it be that His will for our lives is that the deliverance comes through death, so be it, because what deliverance that is. On the cross, Jesus said, Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. Have you committed your spirit into the Father's hands? Do you trust Him? I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you're dealing with. But God does. Take refuge in Him. He will deliver in His time.